0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today, we're speaking to journalist Mataza Hussein. He's going to be talking about the August 29th US drone strike, in which the US military killed basically a whole Afghan family, all civilians, children killed. It's absolutely awful. Uh, Mutaza is going to explain to us how the US said that was legal despite it being uh, a complete catastrophe and a tragedy. Mataza is one of my favourite reporters, listen to what he's got to say. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. We're going to be speaking about this this uh, August 29th strike, right? So the US basically bombed a lot of Afghans just as they were leaving the country, 10 civilians killed. And then afterwards, they kind of said, yeah, no, like it was an accident. We didn't do anything wrong. It's not illegal. Maybe maybe just take us back to the start of that, man. Like what, what happened on that day? And why did they, they launch this strike? So a few, uh, not long before that strike, there was an attack against the Kabul airport where Mm
1: -hmm. several hundred Afghan civilians and uh, several dozen U.S. soldiers were killed and wounded. And there was, the U.S. military was on a high state of alert. Uh, There was statements from even Joe Biden saying that uh, they believed that another threat was imminent. And, you know, their own intelligence, as what they disclosed to the public, seemed to suggest that there was a, a reason to believe this car contained a member of ISIS who potentially was planning another attack against the airport or against the, the evacuation mission taking place at the time. So they carried out the strike and then they immediately celebrated it. They called it a righteous strike several times. They said that they'd taken out a ISIS-K operative. There were even reports in the press that from uh, un- unnamed individuals inside the government saying that they hit a car full of uh, what they described as several suicide bombers. So there were all this, this you know, this uh, self-celebratory um, Aftermath of the attack and then it became very, very clear right away from local Afghan government, uh, sorry, Afghan uh, press sources on the ground in Kabul, that this was not at a hit against an ISIS terrorist, it was against a very well known NGO worker and his family, several children, someone with very long ties to the United States in the sense of working for a U.S.-based US uh, food NGO in Afghanistan. And the U.S. military, it was very interesting that in their description of the strike, they have the video of the strike, with all these strikes, and they know exactly what happened. They claim many things which you know did not seem to pan out when uh, people want to visit the site uh, location, which also the U.S. military never does. They said that there were significant secondary explosions, which would imply that there were explosives in the car, which detonated when the munitions hit them.
0: Mm. That did
1: not seem to be the case. Uh, They, you know, denied or downplayed the possible presence of civilians. They were very insistent that they had killed a terrorist. And then they continued with this narrative only up until the point when it became absolutely impossible to deny what happened. There was just an overwhelming preponderance of evidence that to show who this man really was, Damara Amadi and his family uh, who were killed. And only at that point did they acknowledge that the strike had been erroneous and hit civilians. And even then, they have had a very strange uh, message in the sense that they said that the strike was a mistake, but the intelligence process that led to it was solid. So what that means exactly, no one can really say, but they have simultaneously taken responsibility and not taken responsibility, or in other words, have to chalk this up as a standard part of the business that
0: periodically or perhaps more than periodically will kill civilians in these strikes yeah what what really interested me you kind of you kind of briefly mentioned it there I mean, I don't want to get into like, oh, the media said this and that. But like, there was quite a lot of people like on online being like, yeah, just going with the official line. Like, this is, this was, you know, they killed uh, Islamic State in the Khorasan province. This was a carload of them. And that's that. And like, very quickly, it was online where I saw it, where it was like pictures of the blast site. It was like, hang on now. Like, something it was, I think, you know, it's quite clear. Like, it wasn't as they said it was. Um, how is it that they managed to get this so wrong, do you think?
1: well you know there, there were a number of things which make this strike a bit different from other strikes and mm-hmm. it's not to say that it was other strikes resulted in you know a more greater accuracy but just the, the characteristics of it are different uh, first of all there was a high degree of uh, time pressure and political pressure on the strike in the sense that uh you know they were just been attacking the airport uh there was a very that was one of the most deadly attacks against uh, u.s service members in afghanistan in many many years and the president, everyone was talking about. The media was talking about it, and they had these reports of you know another attack incoming. Uh, no one could really say whether that's true or not, but they acted as though it was true. And they were operating under more like, more political and time pressure than they may have under other types of strikes. And the other part of it is that this strike took place in an urban area, which was highly media saturated. So whatever happened, you know, the correct strike or an erroneous strike. People were going to know about it, unlike the overwhelming majority of strikes carried about the U.S. military, and the drone campaign in Afghanistan or Yemen or Pakistan or elsewhere. Usually happen in rural areas, very inaccessible areas or areas held by uh, groups which are hostile to the central government or the U.S. presence there. So no, in those cases, no one can really, it's very difficult to say what exactly happened. And all you have in most cases is just the military's narrative, which, as we've seen, will always be positive. They will never seem to proactively admit that they killed civilians in these strikes unless proven otherwise to a very, very undeniable degree. So in this case, you know, you had a strike, which, you know, had to take place in X amount of time, and they believed, and then you also had a situation where, you know, for once we were going to see for ourselves what the reality was uh, in juxtaposition to what they were saying at the time. And it was very, very stark difference. They, the self-celebratory uh, response by the government to the strike was, could not have been more different to what actually took place. And we saw that immediately because people were able to visit the strike site. Local reporters uh, had access to what took place. Foreign reporters had access to what took place. And one thing to keep in mind is that U.S. military, although it claims to exercise a very high degree of caution to prevent civilian deaths in these strikes, they do not visit the actual location of strikes that take place to figure out who they actually killed or what happened there. They leave that job to NGOs and journalists and so forth, and then they... You know they they don't share information. They don't share videos or information or intelligence about the strikes. What led to them? So when these very very often is the case that you know Human Rights Watch or Amnesty or Crisis Group or whoever else it is will visit the locations where strikes take place or journalists visit when they take place and they say, hey, you've killed civilians here, some mm-hmm. rural area. Uh, the government will not respond. They will uh, they'll clam up. They will, you know, just insist that they did the right thing and there'll be no further discussion of it unless you can prove to such a degree, almost impossible degree that, uh, you know, it, what happened that they claim did not take place. I've spoken to people who survived these strikes. So they were, you know, in proximity strikes in Syria. And, you know, they say the terrible things happen, like a mosque full of people is blown up or a marketplace is blown up, things like that, a house full of people, or a car full of people. And then we go to the U.S. military and they'll just decline to comment or they'll say that the strikes hit ISIS and so forth without any elaboration and leave it there. And they did that in this case. They did that in the case of the strike in Kabul up to the last moment. So they really did try to cover up what they knew happened because they saw it on video themselves. And then they misdescribed the contents of the video. Now, and now we know what actually took place. And, you know, they I would not say that, you know, it's like the Soviet Union or something like that, where the government cannot be trusted at all. But certainly in these cases, if you're taking everything that they're saying in their descriptions, you know, this is an alternate reality. There's no reason to believe what they're saying in these cases, because they've actually demonstrated that they will mislead the public or even lie about uh, what takes, in these, takes place in these strikes in order to preserve the narrative that they're only hitting uh, ISIS targets or al-Qaeda targets, wherever else it is.
0: Yeah, um, and I will say as well, like in regards to what you've just said there, there is an issue I notice sometimes within particularly conflict reporting, where journalists sometimes forget that you're meant to be adversarial, especially in the like arena of war. And sometimes people will just go along with the the main line, either because it's, oh, West is best, we can't be as bad as that, that kind of nonsense attitude, or it's like, oh, I don't want to lose my access. However, I will say, um, from what I noticed, the reason it seemed to me at least was like great work by yourself and many other reporters were kind of out there online saying like, no this isn't what happened. Do you, do you think the fact that, you know, journalists actually stepped up and showed what happened, do you think that's why the US government had to say like, yeah, fuck, like we we actually didn't do what we said. We just killed a whole family, basically. No,
1: no doubt about it. There's absolutely yeah. no way I could imagine that they would have uh, come clean with the opposite because it was so embarrassing, especially after they initially celebrated the strike and so publicly and proudly to have to go back and, uh, you know, say it not only was it, you know, collateral damage, like people, civilians killed in the course of a legitimate operation, actually no terrorists were killed in the strike. Uh, the car full of suicide bombers was actually, you know, car full of children or children were in the presence of the car, uh, all that. And they're not in the habit of doing that. They're very interested in maintaining narrative control and message control. And, you know, it's interesting, there have been so many tens of thousands of strikes. There's just an unbelievable amount of number of strikes that have taken place over the past 20 years drone strikes, airstrikes uh, in active combat zones or just in places where uh, the U.S. has been carrying out solely air operations and no one ever gets to see what happens in the vast majority of them. So, you know, and they don't proactively come clean and say, we, you know, we've killed X number of civilians and give accurate numbers. You know, a couple of years ago, there was this uh, investigation in The New York Times by Azmat Khan and Anand Gopal called The Uncounted. It was about the U.S. air war in Iraq during the anti-ISIS campaign. And they actually went back and reconstructed uh, from ground research which the. US military does not do uh, in areas where the campaign was took place and they found numbers which completely blew out of the water uh the official u.s death tolls for what they claimed number of civilians being killed. they only seem to count uh, they, it's, it's what we can glean on their own end they te- tend to count everyone as a militant unless proven otherwise mm. unless it's like an infant or something like that in which
0: case then they may can't can't it. say you know like there's no way to even claim that as a kid right? exactly exactly and
1: then you know it's like they kind of do their own uh, they kind of score their own report card in all these cases so Mm -hmm. in the sense that you know it's all classified confidential you have to kind of take their word for it and if you don't you don't really have uh anything else to go on unless you've gone there and done your ground research and in response to that ground research they don't even really respond they just deny it and say well no we didn't and then unless in this case as happened in Kabul there was just an absolute avalanche of uh contradictory information and for once the media and the public were really focused on the subject because the afghan withdrawal at that time was the biggest story in the world Or you know arguably at least for the u.s perspective uh in the media u.s media cycle normally when this takes place no one's paying attention to afghanistan no one's paying attention to syria they're not interested in it so even if there is a lot of evidence they don't really have the political pressure to give a responsible or meaningful response Uh, unlike in this case they just had to just. Too much, too much uh, barreling down on them to ignore it. But, you know, for that reason, like it's not to to say that the U.S. is uniquely bad or uniquely good. It's just it's simply a fact that they do not they do mislead about these strikes. All indications show that they've been killing a gigantic, a huge number of people far beyond anything they've admitted. And their own, you know, self-reporting what's going on here is not uh, trustable or verifiable because every time, very, very often when you look into it on your own, the narrative which emerges is kind of bears no resemblance to what they're saying happened in these in case of these attacks.
0: That's what I'm saying as well. It's like it's not like yeah let's completely demonise one side versus the other. It's like, no, it's just people need to wise up that war is war. And this idea that one side is good, one side is bad, it's just not how it works. Like, the, the worst shit happens, you know what I mean? It's it's really fucking brutal. Um, and that's why I think we should be talking about it, definitely. One, one thing that kind of confused me, um, I don't really know about international law in this sense of, like, civilians getting killed like this, Um, I probably should do more reading on that. But anyway, so the the U.S. Air Force Inspector, Lieutenant General Sami Saeed said um, no violation of law, um, including the law of war. Basically, there was a drone strike. They killed these civilians the Pentagon just said, yeah, no, it was completely legal. Um, how how does that work? How does that make sense? Like, you know, f- for me, I was a bit like, well, even if the intel was bad, surely something bad like this, this can't be completely legal. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, according to the, their own, uh, you know, it, it's very interesting. Like international law is so malleable. So you're saying it can't be legal and I totally agree with you, but the the way it works is basically, I don't, I'm not aware of really any significant war crimes, trials, of high-ranking officials in uh, victorious powers or powers not defeated. So I'm very cynical about international law, per se. I think it's a nice idea, but uh, I think, in in effect, uh, it's effectively, you know, you could charge any number of generals, the U.S. politicians with war crimes had the U.S. been in a situation where it suffered total defeat in the conflict, which didn't happen and it's not foreseeable. So, you know, I, I think that their own argument is that, look, we do our best to adhere to the wars of law. We do adhere to the wars of law. And unfortunately... Uh, at times during legitimate military operations, uh, civilians are killed, and we do our best to avoid that, but it certainly happens. I know, we, you know we're going to make sure we don't do that in the future as much as we can, and they keep it moving with that. Uh, the problem is, I, the thing that uh, is irksome is that in many cases, these conflicts that they're fighting, even if according to the letter of the law, you know they haven't committed any war crimes, they've still destroyed entire cities, killed families and so forth over the course of many, many years. And then the wars themselves. What's the big picture here? Like, were these wars necessary? Was you know was the Iraq War necessary? Was uh, the war in Afghanistan beyond the initial destruction of Al Qaeda was that uh, still necessary twenty years later? And it's a political question, a policy question at that point. And I would say in many cases the answer is no. But uh, effectively, you know, they have a they kind of create the circumstances in which they deem their own actions to be legal and then they score their own report card, and when they once in a while want to uh, put someone out there for a particularly egregious law of war violation, which becomes undeniable or which becomes public, then they'll do so. But if you look at the high, the highest levels, policy levels and command levels, it's very, very rare that they ever find that their own conduct is blameworthy in a legal sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe let's talk a little bit about the victims here. Um, Ten Afghan civilians killed in error, um who were they there were was amity and several of his family members including seven children
1: uh he was a uh us he worked for us ngo he was a food-based ngos aid worker for many years he's trained electrical engineer what we know from the strike so far is that uh he pulled into a family his family home compound and as his family reached out to beat him his kids are running towards the car then the drone strike hit and they killed him, uh, sort of two other adults and seven children in that attack. Now, it was very interesting in the initial uh, description of what happened, the U.S. military's own testimony as to how the attack, how he came onto their radar. They said they're looking for a vehicle, a white Corolla, which matched his description. And also they visited an ISIS safe house that day at some point. interesting. so white Toro Corolla is a very common car in Afghanistan. And, you know, if you were to say a black Honda Civic and, you know, London or New York, you'd probably find just as many cars. And secondly, the purported ISIS safe house. later on uh, journalists visited that exact address they said had uh, the address he'd visited that day. they could reconstruct from cameras and they found more, you know no ISIS safe house there a normal family living there. Um, also people were trying to get out of the country uh, due to the fall the country's fall of the Taliban. So there was no ISIS involved in this. And there was no ISIS at any point in this. It was all his him, his family members, and people he worked with. And, you know, it's interesting. Like, if we had not been able to have access to the site, of journalists had not access to the site, we would just only have the government's narrative. And at most, either we would have believed their narrative being the only official narrative out there, or it would have become a he said, she said, where some people were saying that's not true. we killed civilians, and they were insisting that they didn't. Uh, only in this case, because everyone is able to see it, we're able to say for sure who was killed in the strike and that they were, in fact, civilians and not ISIS K members, as initially claimed.
0: Yeah, and I read that the youngest um, child to be killed was just two years old. Like, it's fucking heartbreaking, man. Absolutely brutal. But, um, unfortunately, this this is not the first time by any means that America has done this right. Uh, even in Afghanistan, like, this has happened quite a few times before. Absolutely, it's happened
1: many, many times over the years. Uh, there have been, like, thousands and thousands of strikes carried <sighs> If you actually think It's actually shocking when you look at how many strikes have been carried out by the U.S. military. In, if you just take Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, we're talking about tens of thousands of strikes for officially reported numbers. And there are other, you know, there were a couple of years ago, there was an incident when it came to light that helicopter attacks were not being counted in the official tallies. So we're talking about tens of thousands of strikes with munitions against crowds of people, hundreds of thousands of people actually killed or maimed or wounded or deprived of family members. And very, very, it's very rare that we ever get, you know, a strike like this, where it gets a scrutiny. It reminds me of something, actually, I have a friend who was a reporter in Afghanistan for many years, and he was there at the time of uh, Abu Ghraib had come to light in uh, in Iraq. And he said, I don't understand how people make such a big deal about Abu Ghraib, because there was Abu Ghraib happening in every village in southern Afghanistan at the same time, uh, at, you know, in terms of prisoner abuses and DTN abuse and so forth. So it's very, very blinkered what actually comes to light in terms of public, you know, what incidents come to light you know, and get people's attention. And it just turns out that this drone strike will go down. History as one of the most infamous drone strikes of the U.S. drone program. But it was not so infamous because what happened was particularly bad out of the ordinary, but because the fact that we all knew about it. And just like Abu Ghraib, there were photos that came out. So we all knew about it, It became much more infamous than other incidents that we didn't, will not know about or only know about in a very uh, limited way. Uh, and this really, you know, it, it became a media event. In addition to the terrible crime that took place, it became a media event, which sort of imprinted upon ourselves and our memory what took place in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, maybe give us an example then of some of the strikes that have happened similar to this. Because I know that, for example, Yemen, there's been like a really serious one. One that always sticks in my mind is when they they hit the bus full of kids, stuff like that. I really think it's important to understand that, like, you know, there are very specific examples where we have actually seen it come to light. You know what I mean? So uh, that attack that hit the uh, bus full of kids, in my recollection, it was a Saudi airstrike.
1: And, of course, the U.S. arms the Saudis. Right, uh, you're right, Yeah. Yeah, in in Yemen. But there was another attack, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in Yemen that a wedding convoy was killed uh, in a rural area. The U.S. military had struck a a convoy of cars driving towards a wedding after being, you know, their intelligence uh, mistakenly concluded that it was an AQAP, sorry, Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula convoy. Uh, They killed a number of uh, the people who were present. And, you know, this strike happened to come to light. because people raised, you know, an outcry over it. Uh, It happens quite often. It happens quite often. And I would say how often it happens, it's it's difficult because the U.S. military, they could tell us exactly how often these things happen because they could do, they have the resources to do uh, investigations in their own strikes, far more so than NGOs and journalists do. They have a, you know, almost trillion dollar budget. They also are aware of the coordinates of all their strikes. They could release the coordinates and then let people verify on their own, look at what happened in these strikes. So, uh, and they can, we can actually correlate the coordinates of strikes. We know people were killed see where the U S carried out strikes. They don't release those, that information. And they also have the video footage. Every single one of these strikes is video recorded and they know they can see what took place. They can see if children were there or, you know, who's there, what happened after the strikes took place. And of course they don't release that either. So it, It's very much under a veil of secrecy. And when that's the case, you can only rely upon what you're able to doubly confirm. And in the cases when we do go and doubly confirm, like this Kabul strike we talked about right now, for instance, it does not line up with what we've been told of what happened in these cases. And so there was a Yemen strike. There was an infamous strike in Pakistan some years ago where a tribal gathering was killed. Many um, dozens of people were killed in that attack. And there have been many, many attacks in Afghanistan over the years in rural areas that, you know, marketplaces and otherwise have killed in some cases hundreds of people. And, you know, these attacks have never really formally been acknowledged or even really poured over in the press fully, given the, compared to the magnitude of how important they were. You have to really do a lot of digging, you know, either reporting or even looking through the records of what's been reported to find these incidents. And in most, the overall majority of cases, you get, Either no comment or perfunctory responses from the U.S. on their side when they know exactly what happened. They they saw with their own eyes and carried it out, so they could tell us.
0: Uh, obviously, you've done a lot of work on this, and a lot of your colleagues have as well at the Intercept. Um, what advice would you give to for reporters for researchers that want to look into stuff like this, that really want to kind of unearth this sort of stuff, especially when it initially happens?
1: So th- there are a number of outlets that uh, cover this, uh, cover the dr- drone war, the airstrikes. Uh, relatively with relatively good frequency but i think that there are actually individuals who do a better job of it like for instance anand gopal azmat khan are both excellent i think Osman's working on a book about airstrikes at the moment mm. uh there's intercept we rely a lot on uh these non uh, non-governmental organizations which do mass aggregation to the best they can of information about these strikes to the them i would say are really the best of this are air wars and Amnesty International, which visits, you know, they have used whatever resources they can to visit as many strike sites as they can, and also gather information from local journalists. One good thing about the internet, actually, is that, well, I mean, there are many good things about it, but one one good thing about how it makes it easier to track the subject is that everyone has a cell phone now in many of these areas. So in Syria, during the air war there, there were a lot of reports from local journalists or local individuals doing citizen journalism who were there, and they were Uh, recording aftermaths of events. They were documenting on their cell phones and they were posting about strikes when they took place. You know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was a week and a half ago or so, there was reporting about the strike in Baku in Syria during the last days of the anti-ISIS war. And the strike had killed, you know, over 60 people. It seems and you know information about that was known inside the military at the time, but it was not revealed or it was suppressed at the chain of command. Again, in order to limit the narrative to a scope that they preferred, which is like only terrorists are being killed. At the time, actually, there's a group called the Raqqa being slaughtered silently, an anti-ISIS group, which is very celebrated in the U.S. for its working against ISIS, which reported on this massacre. They called it a terrible massacre of civilians. And, you know, there are many contemporaneous reports from local activists and local journalists and local just ordinary people from the seeing these strikes, which are good to keep track of. And they really feed into what journalists do. So what I would do normally in this case is, and we were doing this during the Syria wars, we contact local contacts on the ground in Syria. And we get that we reconstruct as much as we can uh, from their perspective. And then we try to double confirm the location of the strike or other reports about it. And then we report about The Intercept. So, you know, it, it takes many people to or many links down the chain to get finally reporting done. At The Intercept, you we said, we, we do try to focus on it because there's almost there's not a lot of interest seems, in this subject. And on, on a daily basis from the U.S. public or whoever else would be demanding the stories in The Washington Post, and New York Times on a regular basis. So we report it regularly. But, you know, it takes because of the fact that the U.S. military does not devote its own resources to covering itself. We only even get like a snapshot or like a uh, uh, window blind raised look at the whole the whole picture. I think the whole picture numerically is far far worse in terms of airstrikes, the number of airstrikes, and the impact on civilians and even the intercept reports.
0: Yeah, um, it's it's a weird question, maybe, but how how do you think stuff like this can be avoided in the future? You know, obviously better intel is needed, but as someone that has, you know, been out in the field and covered war and stuff, sometimes when I see like what, like there was an airstrike there and it's like really like next to this person's house, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I get it, you know, there are bad people around, they've they've got to be knocked off. But often if it's in a built up urban area, it's just like there's no way that that can be, you know, can be um, precise. Um, you know, what, what do you think? Like do you think there's a way that this can be limited? Well, you know, it's an interesting question
1: because... The, the u.s military is there's actually a very interesting book that came out recently it's called humane it's by a guy named samuel moyn yeah and the the thesis of the book basically is that the u.s military has been very focused on over the years and the and u.s military even before that the european military is after the world wars on how to make war more you could say sterile or more you know controlled so You know, I I think the epitome of this is, you know, in in World War II, there's carpet bombings of cities and there's this mass destruction. Even Vietnam had very similar things. And the wars in Iraq and Syria, take example, they were waged very brutally, but they weren't, in many cases, at least there was a notional idea, or you can call it PR or sincere, whatever else is. But the idea is we should try to limit, you know, who we're killing to the people we're trying to kill. Uh, And that's kind of the goal of war now. So. I think this reached an apex in the development of this uh this bomb that they've deployed in Syria on drones it has
0: like a shredder it's like not an explosive ordnance but it's it hits the target I don't remember the name of it is you familiar with this Yeah yeah I know what you mean it looks like like a lot of swords are coming out of it it's actually fairly accurate to be fair when it hits a car for example Yeah exactly exactly so
1: basically the these drones they fire this uh munition which is not explosive but has these uh, sharp spikes in it and it hits exactly the person it's supposed to hit and just that person so no you could even hit someone theoretically in a car in one seat and then people in the other parts of the car may not be harmed but that person would be you know totally crushed and shredded so really their goal is they would like they would like to make war as clinical and targeted as possible but in doing so they're making war they're making it able to continue on indefinitely. And then, you know, the big picture question is about, should we really be killing that person? Or what is the effect of that killing that person? Don't need to get asked because people feel that they made war humane enough than the actual evil of the war itself, which they stop devoting efforts to ending it as a whole or finding ways it can be ended and having a peaceable solution. They just have permanent clinical warfare, which is still very bad for the people affected, whether it's people being killed or people around them and so forth. So, you know going back to your point about like well they only hit a house well i think in the future maybe they will invent a a weapon which can just hit someone in the house or just hit you know go into the house and just target the person they want but then can they do that today i don't think so i think they they the way they talk about it is like they let they like to have that notion of their goal and they're working their technology towards that point but even if they were to do that i think that it may be it may arguably be sort of like deferring the question, like, you know, like UK, maybe he only hit that house. Can you explain to me why we're you, in this country hitting hanging this house anyways? Like, what was the context that brought you here? Is there an end game or exit plan after you kill this person get out of here? Uh, usually, I don't think people can answer that question. And, you know, as we know today, as you visit the sites of these strikes, it usually isn't just that person who's killed. It's usually many, many more people killed. Their families are angry about it. They're angry about it. Uh, or the people who survive are angry about it. And then they find themselves, you know, defeating more and more war. And I think a very important point I also want to make, too, is that the U.S. military, after the first decade or so of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, switched very much from ground warfare to aerial warfare and also the delegation of ground fighting to proxies. So in the first decade of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were several thousand U.S. service members killed. Uh, There were even more contractors killed. And this is something which the U.S. public did not like. And it, it put pressure politically for the wars to end. But then, you know, the military and political leaders felt the wars must continue. But how could they manage that when the public is turning against them? So what they did was they started switching the wars to aerial combat. And what that did was there were more civilians killed in these strikes because, you know, aerial weapons are by nature, they're less discriminating or they have a wider range of destruction than, uh, you know, a, a rifle or something like that. But also the violence of the war The retributive violence on the other side falls more upon local people as well, too. So if you want to fight the U.S. and you're at war with the U.S., but they're only in the sky with drones and people in the drones are in Nevada and there's no way you can possibly get them. Then, you know, when you respond to violence, like arguably, it's going to be hitting the people who you view as connected to the U.S., whether rightly or wrongly. And that's usually local civilians or local ground troops, which are in some sense supported by the U.S. or perceived to be supported by the U.S., so it's kind of like it's just like making the war as clinical and sterile as possible for Americans, as deadly as possible for people on the ground in these circumstances. What they should do is if they want to fight wars, you should take the full cost of the war. You should deploy your ground troops. You should uh, let them take the brunt of the violence from the people they're fighting against and make sure they're killing people they want to kill. And then, you know, if you can decide if you want to fight a war that way. But now they decide that they want to like to keep the war going. They don't want to pay any the cost of it. But the costs are still being paid by somebody on the ground, and that's usually, as I said,
0: civilians or local ground troops of uh, national armies. Yeah, no, no, totally. Um, that that missile is the R nine X. Um, they call it the flying Ginsu. Some people do. Um, just just one last question, mate. After um, after this kind of stuff happens, obviously. You know, the Americans have said, right, it was a mistake. In in the past, they have been and reimbursed people. Well, you can't reimburse a life, but, you know, they go and give them money and say, like, yeah, sorry about that. You know, your whole family's dead, but have some money. Um, do we know if this has happened with this recent situation? Because obviously that would happen when america was in afghanistan there's even footage of it on documentaries i've seen where literally soldiers will go and deliver like a bag of money to some elders you know what i mean after they've accidentally killed a kid or you know whatever um do we know if that situation has happened with with this latest one that we've been talking about
1: oh what i've seen is that the family of the people killed were requested to uh, be evacuated from the country and from what we've seen the u.s military has responded affirmatively to that request now okay and so their their compensation such as we know so far is good that they're going to be moved out of afghanistan which they were trying to leave at the time actually the gentleman was killed he had actually initiated the process to try to get his family out of the country and he may have been successful because he was very educated he was uh he had long-standing ties to the us ngos Unfortunately, he and his children were killed, but the remaining members of the family may end up being able to leave the United States now uh, as a result or as, you know, a kind of a grim consequence of this incident.
0: How, how horribly, like, grimly ironic it is that even after working with the U.S. when they were there, his family only get out after he's dead and a lot of the other kids are dead. Very sad, very grim. Um, is there anything else you want to mention, mate, before we go? You know, only that uh, I think that uh, the U.S. military has
1: this drone program and they've, they're the pioneers of this technology. But as we're seeing now, they're not the only ones deploying it now. Turkey has a very advanced drone program. Uh, Russia has a drone program. China has a drone program. And I think in the years to come, they're going to be deploying these drones. Turkey already is deploying these drones in foreign conflicts. Russia has been carrying out airstrikes in Syria. And uh, who knows what the Chinese military will do in the 21st century, but um, certainly um, we expect them to use it. So, I think that uh, uh, the important thing to keep in mind is that uh, this is not the only country that in the future, which is gonna, now this precedent has been set, but we don't know how this technology will be used in the future. And in all likelihood, it will be deployed in even less uh, scrupulous or uh, observable ways. And secondly, you know, drones are bad, but I mean, so drone, drones are a tool which is used sometimes to inflict outcomes which are bad in conflicts or outside of conflicts. But at the end of the day, there's still people who are operating them, and there's some sort of human aspect to it, to a degree. You know, what someone looking at a screen in a different part of the world, there's still there's still a person inside the screen. The thing that really frightens me, or the thing that really is alarming, I think, should be a focus of a lot of uh, media attention and regulatory attention, and you know, advocacy is the emergence of autonomous weaponry. So I there was a report recently of the first autonomous drone kill. In Libya by a Turkish drone that was carried out in the sense that the, the robot itself makes targeting decisions and executes them. When we get to that point with technology is nearing, you could have wars happening on full autopilot where you know you just turn on the uh drones and no one really is pressing the button or even aware on the other side of what's going on, and the war is just functioning like that. I think that, that would be a very dangerous threshold. You know, if you actually read accounts of drone operators, many of them have a difficult time with ethically with what they're doing or there's some sense of, you know, at least theoretically legal or moral accountability for the actions. When we go to the autonomous weapons stage, which we're very close to, uh, that'll all go out the window. So I think it's very important that we, to the extent possible pull back from that or at least draw sufficient public attention to it because it is on the horizon
0: yeah yeah there's definitely i've been reading quite a bit about that recently especially this year and the, the technology is getting there like it's in our lifetime we'll see it personally I, d- I don't think it will i don't know i can't see it going well at all also these things are fucking programmed by the same people that you know drop the drones off so we'll see and i think you made a good point as well uh there as well yes like this episode is about America, but let's not forget, many countries do this Saudi Arabia, Israel, Russia like, everybody is doing this horrible shit in war, just drawing, striking families and whatnot. Um, yeah. Uh, mate, where, where can people get hold of you? If they want to see your work, they want to follow you, uh, where should I go to? Yeah, check me on Twitter,
1: mazm. H-U-S-S-A-I-N. Check check me on Twitter there, Murtaza Hussein, And then uh, you follow my stuff and I'm on the Intercept and a few other places here and there.
0: But majority of the stuff's on Twitter or posted there and you can follow me from there. Brilliant mate. Thank you so much for that. Thanks a lot, bro. Was journalist Mutaza Hussein speaking about the August 29th drone strike from the US military, in which basically a whole family of civilians, including children, was killed uh, in a drone strike. Very sad. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com/slash PopularFront that is the main way we make money we have been censored off of youtube we're not allowed to advertise there despite some of our documentaries having more than two and a half million views we make no money from that we're not allowed to promote our stuff on instagram either we can't make any money that way so the way we make money because we refuse corporate investment is on the patreon patreon.com slash popular front there's loads of extras there five pounds a month ten pounds a month whatever you get access to the community discord uh monthly bonus episodes that are only on the patreon there's all sorts there check it out patreon.com slash popular front or if you want to support us in another way via crypto or whatever go to popularfront.co support you will see all of the details there this episode was sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee shop uh, coffee business selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 the episode was also sponsored by our friends at grind core cool house as a pair of independent coffee shops in philadelphia usa one in south one in west find them on socials at grind core cool house the episode was also sponsored by propagandopolis an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. You can buy prints at propagandopolis.com, use promo code POPULARFRONT10 for 10% off. If you want to advertise with us and you're ethical, you're independent, um, let us know. You can email me at hanrahan at pm.me. So h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n at pm.me. We have over uh, 3 million unique downloads, we get a lot, a lot of listeners, so if you're interested and you think that will match up, drop me a line. If you want to follow us on social media, uh, watch our documentaries, youtube.com slash popularfront, Instagram at popular.front, Twitter at popularfront underscore, Um, just check our website out at popularfront.com. Remember as well to follow our backup account on the Instagram because we're threatened with being deleted every single week Basically because we show the news through an unfiltered um, way and we believe that it's it's important to show the world the the real aspects of war and conflict as it is So follow the backup at popularfront underscore Uh, Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. Check Sam's music out at samblackpf.com. Sam is a massive part of Popular Front. Without him, we wouldn't be able to do this. So definitely check his music out, share it, everything like that. Samblackpf.com. Thank you very much to the higher tier patrons. Without you, this would not be possible. I mean it. Um, thanks for staying with us all of this time. Really do appreciate it. There's big things coming next year. Um, thank you to RA Champagne Anarchist. Thwatt, Elise Middlefar, Jess Lewis or Louis, uh, David McManus, Joaquin Williamson Holt, Udoye Travis, check him out, he's a comedian, I was looking on his uh, Instagram the other day, he's very funny, check him out, Udoye Travis. Uh, Thank you to Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate, Lisa Milgram, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, I'm dying, I'm really ill, apologies, Um, Bradley Davies, Brendan Crave, Pete Hesher, Rx, A. Nicole Travis Lieberman Cherry, Ben Marshall Dallas Dunn LD50 Seattle (coughs) MJ K. Glitter Vulcan Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland Adam H. Carante Bjorn Kirsten Diamond Steen, Michael O'Connor Zach Picard, Todd Cravens Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson JD, Jav Ian Froese, James Culley Heinen Daly, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, uh, D.R., Trey Nance, Amy R., Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Nawaiz, Nate Van Door, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, <coughs> sorry, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarek, Dan Dunham, Fletcher, Dinah Govenek, Le- Lawrence Abrahams, uh, Peter McCormack from Wh- What Bitcoin Did, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin at Shady Project, Ryan Sandercock and Moritz Zumbo, Thank you all so much, really, really appreciate it. Without you lot, this would not be moving as fast as it is. Trust me, next year we're doing a lot. It's gonna be really good, thanks.